0: there are differences in the relationships, but at the same time, it's grief. It's the grief of having lost a loved one and needing to find a way to allow that grief to change us. We can never go back how things were beforehand. That is utterly impossible. So it's more about allowing that grief to change us and to find a way that that, person can always be part of us.
1: Welcome to the Self-Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials. Here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Welcome to the Self-Love Podcast. This week, I have a beautiful soul talking to us all about grief. Now, you may not be experiencing grief right this moment, or you may be in the throes of it, but grief can come in all shapes and sizes, and I think you'll really appreciate listening to our beautiful Silky Herwald. She's a highly experienced and skilled grief specialist. She's a master hypnotherapist, master practitioner, in NLP. She's a supervisor, speaker, and accomplished presenter with over 12 years experience. She works with people from all walks of life to deal with grief and anxiety in very resourceful ways. She presented her unique grief to love framework at the 2019 AHA World Conference to an international audience of psychotherapists, counselors, psychologists, and hypnotherapists. She's mastered the fine art of talking about grief in a light-hearted yet deeply insightful way. Over 12 years, Silky has assisted hundreds of clients through grief and anxiety worldwide, online, in-person, and with grief-to-love seminars. Silky understood from a start that her clients from all over the world share the same experience. Their heart is broken and not their head. Silky had mastered the fine art of working with the subconscious processes because logic, rational thinking, and consciousness work reaches its limits very quickly. Three years ago, Silky lost her sole sister to cancer. She promised her that she'd do whatever it takes so that one day their parents and her beloved husband would be able to live life and feel joy again. She had no clue how she would fulfill that promise for her sister, but Silky managed to keep it by developing an even deeper understanding of how the unconscious processes work in grief. Then 2021 hit with a vengeance. First, Silky had to help her gentle, loving therapy dog over the Rainbow Bridge. Her dog has been a huge part and valued member of the clinic team. Only a couple of weeks later, Silky completely unexpectedly lost her beloved dad and her mum, her best friend and husband. Silky knows what it's like to be rocked on the floor by grief. She also heard her own conscious mind politely say, sure, I'll try that, while every cell inside her body screamed, heck no. Today, Silky not only has the knowledge and skills to help people with grief and all the subconscious objections we have to moving forward or letting go, but also the personal and professional experience. She is one of the most down-to-earth, big-hearted, non-judgmental and fun-loving people you could meet. She has clinics in Koolham and Batinia, and she works worldwide online with individuals and groups. Silky lives with her husband and a younger border collie on the Sunshine Coast. If you want to reach out to her, all her details are in the show notes but look up grieftolove.com. I know you're going to love her as much as I do. Her words will bring comfort as we grieve and process our ways through the world and as, as the way that we see it right here and now, but also perhaps what's been lost and maybe the unknown of the future. Please take care of yourselves, hug yourself up, make sure you're kind and taking special care because this week's podcast is dedicated to all of us that are trying to process and navigate our ways through this very strange times. Take care, guys. As you can hear, I'm incredibly excited to bring to you the beautiful Silky Herwald. I have heard about this woman for many, many years, and I keep crossing paths with her energetically. I keep hearing many amazing stories and outcomes. And in particular, what I truly love about this special soul is her experience, particularly around grief. And given the state of the world right now and given how we're all feeling, perhaps grieving our worlds, our lives, maybe what was, I couldn't think of anyone better to bring to us and open our hearts in this beautiful conversation. But welcome to the self-love podcast, beautiful Silky.
0: Oh, thank you so, so much for having me. And um, yeah, I've heard so much about you from all various people as well. So I'm just so glad that we get to finally connect. I know
1: and share our connection with these beautiful listeners. It's just really special. But, you know, for people that don't know anything about you or perhaps have only just crossed your path, could you give us a little brief background as to who you are, what you do and why you're so passionate in this field of grief?
0: Sure. Um, so I'm a hypnotherapist, master hypnotherapist, master NLP practitioner, and um, I have worked with grief actually for a long time. So I've been, I've been full time in this field for, for over 12 years. And um, I just remember very early on in uh, when I first started out, I had one particular lady come to see me and uh, she said that she wanted to stop drinking. And um, I asked her how much she drank, and I asked her when did she start drinking this amount. And she said, "Oh, uh, that was on such and such date, and um, about two and a half years ago." And I asked her what happened, and she told me that her husband had passed away on that day. So I very quickly realised that this actually was not a problem of drinking too much, but that it was actually a problem of grief. And what had happened was that um, during the day she was able to hold it together and go to work, but then when she came home at night, um, she just couldn't really deal with all of the emotions and um, started to to drink as a, as a coping mechanism very much, and it just became more and more. And um, so we started working with all of those emotions, and she'd um, done some counselling before, but she kind of felt that talking about the problem um, didn't really help her, and she knew that she had strategies to use. But when those big waves of grief just overcame her, she was, just couldn't use those logical strategies. So because grieving is so much an unconscious process, and then we started to work very much with her grief and with all of the objections that the unconscious has to um moving in a different direction but we need to make sure that we keep that love with us and integrate it in a way and within you know a number of session I literally saw her just lifting and um, yeah she very quickly stopped drinking and started to reconnect with life and that to me was such a profound experience that I really loved from that moment onwards working with grief and um So specialised in in grief and helped a lot of people. And um, then three and a half years ago, uh, my own sister died to cancer. And we had essentially been watching her die for about a year, year and a half. But of course, you know, there's always hope. So um, you always think that next treatment is going to help. And um, till the very end, we didn't actually believe that she was going to go when it was so plainly obvious that there was actually no hope. And um, somehow I had promised her that I would make sure that our parents, mum and dad and her beloved husband of over 25 years were going to be okay. And I had no idea how I was going to keep that promise, but I just kind of had to. So after that, I went even deeper into researching grief and how different grief affects different people and how differently it affects different relationships as well. And um so yeah, that was that was three and a half years ago. And since then, you know, I've been been a speaker at the International Um AHA World Conference in 2019 on grieve. And um I'm 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 glad to say that both my mum and dad and my brother-in-law came came through and the most beautiful um testimonial I think I'll ever get uh was when my mum said to me, I'm so glad. I'm so happy that I can can experience joy again. And to hear that from my own mum with whom I've done so much work was just was just amazing. And um then this year um I had my my beautiful old old border collie she was 15 and a half and she'd been a fixture in the clinic she was like the team mascot and always came to work with me and um unfortunately this year she was just her body was just not coping anymore. And we had to make this awful decision to let her go. Um, And then two weeks later, I got the phone call from my mum that I never expected um, that my dad was dying. And um, so that happened in July this year. So I was lucky that I got a travel exemption and flew home, but he died within just a few hours. And, um, so yeah I once again went even deeper on grief and um yeah had to deal once again with my own grief and what was really interesting is that one of my best friends is also a master hypnotherapist and an NLP and I needed help I needed help to deal with my own stuff so also that I could help mum once again and um she said okay what do you to do teach me teach me and um I taught her how to help people who are grieving. And she said, man, you've got to teach other therapists this stuff. And um, so, yeah, I've kind of become a grief expert, half by choice and half by necessity, really. So that's my story there.
1: Oh, amazing. And I, I just want to say to you that, first of all, wow. I mean, you know, when we all hear the loss and there's so many emotions that come up for all of us when we hear of other people's pain and obviously it also triggers for many of us our own griefs our own losses our own times of trauma and pain do you think there's different ways that we grieve do you think there's different elements to grief could you explain to us what you believe the process of grief really is and what it and how it serves us
0: absolutely so the the process of grief is very much that when it's an unconscious process it needs to be an unconscious process and your your unconscious is always trying to work for you now whether it is working or not is a completely different story but the unconscious is always trying to help you and of course the unconscious knows that you've already lost so so much and it kind of wants to make sure that you don't lose even more than what you have already lost which is why very often in grief, what we actually remember are mostly the last moments of our loved one, or the last horrible weeks, or um, they're dying, or those are the usually the memories that come spontaneously to mind, when in actual fact, there was so much more to life. But of course, because it's the last thing that still connects us with our loved one, which is why the unconscious constantly wants to replay this memory. But, of course, every time we remember this memory, it just makes us feel absolutely horrible, and we get overcome with this absolute deep, deep grief once again. So because the unconscious is actually trying to fulfill a positive intention, then once we can help the unconscious find a better way to make sure that we actually keep all of our memories, that we can access them spontaneously, that is really what the grieving process is designed to do. Because consciously we quite often think it's an either or. It's like either I grieve and feel horrible or I move on or let go I really resent both of those phrases um, and forget about my loved one as if they kind of never existed. But of course that is not true at all because the actual real unconscious grieving path is kind of in the middle of those two, where we actually do remember them in their entirety in, in, in being alive very much. And um, so that we once we grieve resourcefully, then stuff happens where we get spontaneous memories i was I was working with a with a lady online and um I received an email from her, and she said, "Oh, I was just driving past this um golf course, and all of a sudden, I remembered how about thirty years ago, on one of our first dates, my husband took me." To, um, to a driving range. And it was utterly hilarious. And she said, I haven't thought about this memory in a very, very, very long time. But as long as she was rocked by grief and could only remember the, the horrible times, that memory was completely gone. But through the, that grieving process, she was then able to have spontaneous memories of him in a way that actually put like a smile on her face. And that's very much what the grieving process is actually designed to do is so that we can remember our loved ones. Like, in, for example, in the same way that you might remember, I don't know, maybe a, a particular teacher who you, you really loved. Um, you've got no idea whether that person is still alive or where they are or whatever. But when you think about this person, you kind of get a smile and a warm feeling. And that is, for me, this ongoing connection where when we grieve resourcefully, we actually still have this this ongoing connection, which is why I call it to go from grief to love because we can still feel a loving connection to our deceased loved ones. It's a very beautiful
1: process that you talk about, and I know myself with my own grief over the years that, that smile, that warmth, that feeling of going from grief to love is actually incredibly empowering. And if anything, you feel closer because the yes. hardest thing about loss is people say time moves on, you you know, it gets easier with time. And I'm not sure I've agreed with that over time because to me, it's just like the days get further and further apart that I actually experience their company or themselves or even if it was a pet. And so I find that I'm really curious around that line between the the grief and feeling horrible and the move on to let go. I really, it's the first time I've heard someone explain that. And I think being in the middle of those two is where I feel most comfortable. Yeah. yeah. One of one of my beautiful friends, her dad, um, when he lost her mum, um, sorry, his wife, her mum, um, he said, I've I've never heard him, he's only just passed away, actually, himself in his 90s. But for the 20-odd years that I knew him, I never once heard him say he missed Jan, he wished she was still here. I could see that. But what he would say is, I was married to the most amazing woman for 49 years. Oh, Jan was amazing. And oh. I must admit, I watched Danny, my husband's mother, do this when we lost her beautiful daughter, Danny's sister, to suicide. And I never once heard her say anything around. I knew she was grieving. I saw her cry and there were moments. It's not that she denied herself that, but she would say, oh, I knew the most beautiful woman for 36 years. And it brought such comfort to all of us. Is that easy to do? Or do you think that's a process by being in that middle road that allows you to be in that space?
0: I think um, there is a little bit of a uh, predisposition in people so that people who already have the ability to do gratitude really well, to live gratuitously and always notice the good things, they get there faster than others. Um, Because really what both of those people are doing is they're expressing how grateful they are for having had that wonderful life with this other person. And they are really focusing on that. But of course, that doesn't diminish their grief, but they have that ability to kind of go, oh, my God, how lucky am I? So many people never get to experience this this love that we've shared. And they, they start to focus a little bit on that. And, um, but everybody else can also get there pretty much by rewiring um, at an unconscious level, how we remember the person and what the brain automatically wants to be paying attention to. Yeah, that really makes sense. And so when
1: you, let's, let's just take it down a step and just when someone grieves, whether it's loss of work, loss of health, loss of a loved one loss of a life that they thought that they had or whatever, what are some common responses to grief?
0: So I think it depends uh, very much on the person. Um, and um, some people are just overcome with incredible sadness and, um, you know, I think after all my losses, I think the first time when when my sister died and um, I had people say to me, you know, oh sometimes that grief just rocks me and, and throws me to the floor and I just find myself weeping on the bathroom floor. And after my sister died, I kind of went like, oh, now I get it. I really get what you meant with that. Because beforehand, I could kind of like half imagine it. But all of a sudden, I was there and I knew what those people were experiencing. Other people, um, they go into a little bit of a depressed state and um, go into something like, well, what's the point? What's the point of doing anything if everything kind of ends? Whether that is you know, the loss of a job or the loss of a life that we once had or the loss of the loved one. Um, that it's a bit like, what's the point? What's even the point of getting out of bed if everything... Ends in the end anyway. Other people um, all of a sudden have got this desire to completely rethink everything because they become aware of. That life and jobs and everything has got a finite ending on it. And um, all of a sudden, they just need to rethink, am I really doing with my precious time what I want to be doing? And sometimes it produces like a zest for life. so the responses, some people get get really um, angry or lots of people get very, very anxious as well. And um, they constantly think about what if this, what if that, or they go either into the future, how I'm going to handle this, or they go into the past and pretty much beating themselves up and go, I should have done more, I should have done this. So guilt is also a huge part of grief. And I think r- really the Emotions in grief, list any human emotion, and it can be there in grief. Well, that makes
1: complete sense, doesn't it? And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've learned through people like yourself and obviously the work that you do is that all these emotions do play a part, an important part. So to squash grief or guilt or anger or anxiety or any of these that's not really the way to heal either, is it?
0: No, 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 no. You, you, can't, you can't run away from it. Uh, y- you can't push it. I mean, you can push it down for a certain amount of time, but it will always, always come back up because the unconscious will pretty much let you know that there is something that is unresolved and that you need to pay attention to and that you need to process. And um, yeah, when people push it down, run away from it. You know, this thing about when people, I don't know where that came from in our society, that people almost say and applaud somebody and say, oh, she's so strong. Look at her dealing with her grief. It's like, that is not dealing with grief at all. That is just pushing it away and soldiering on and getting on with it. Um But that is not actually grieving.
1: No, and I think that's really challenging to even know. What about, I mean, when we're in the throes of it, it, there's that beautiful saying, when emotions are high, intelligence is low. It's not like we always do the best work within ourselves when we're incredibly emotional and volatile. But what about for someone watching someone in grief? Is there certain rules that you've made or created or certain things in your heart that's that can give people guidance if they're watching someone
0: else in grief? Yeah, um, because I think as a society, we don't really know how to grieve. We're really bad at it. Um, as a general rule, because of course, we have been trained since we were little um, that we always need to cheer somebody up. We need to be a good friend. We need to help the other person. We need to somehow, you know, make it better for them. But of course, in grief, apart from bringing the deceased loved one back, there's really nothing anyone can do and so those so that's why i think it is so difficult for our society to help somebody who's grieving resourcefully and the best thing to do is really just to be there don't try to fix it don't I think the worst thing anybody could ever say is at least, anything that starts with at least, please don't go there because um, I think the only person who's allowed to say at least is the person who is grieving. Um, And I think the best thing to do is just be there, listen to their story, and also ask the person, um, how, how can I support you? chances are in the beginning, the person is so overwhelmed, they wouldn't have a clue. They don't know. And then just some really simple task as in, all right, I I went shopping for you. Um, can I vacuum the floor for you, or you just rock up and do something, or you bring food. Um, just those really, li- because everything is so overwhelming in the beginning that all of those simple tasks, they're just so, so difficult to do. And when somebody actually just does it, it is really helpful. The other thing that a lot of people do is just, "I'll oh, call me if you need anything. The person who's grieving, they don't even know what they need or what they could possibly need. So it's about thinking about the your friend or the person grieving, just kind of going, okay, what do they like? Or to just say, hey, I'm coming over and um, we're going to have a cup of tea together or, come on, we're going to go for a half-hour walk and um, to just be there and always give them the option. And if you if you don't want to see me, that's okay, let me know. So to always give the grieving person the, the chance to back out. I also found when we were we all had young babies
1: and one of our the girls in our group, she just got the news one night that her husband at 35 had passed away, had a heart issue that no one knew about, he didn't know about, no one knew. And to watch her, a mother of a one-year-old and us with between three and six month-old babies It was the first time we'd all actually considered life insurance. What does it look like when we die? Because in the early 30s with a new baby, you're not thinking, you know, ever dying. And we watched this beautiful soul go through this and it was harrowing. I have to be honest. And, you know, like you say, I don't think any of us do grief well, but it was harrowing to watch her. And I think out of what I got from it and what I learned was the one thing she really Wanted and needed is she did not want people to stop talking about her husband, and yet people were really struggling knowing what to say. Yes. Do you think it's okay to say, Would you like me to talk about them? Do you want to talk about them? Or can you talk
0: about them and then say, Look, you don't have to talk about them because some people are different, aren't they? Yes, people, people are different. Um, but in my experience, m- most people love it. When you remember their loved one, because if if the grieving person is the only sometimes it, you, it it feels like you're all alone in the world anyway, and then when nobody talks about the disease, then it's as everybody has already forgotten the person, and then it kind of it feels almost like they've died again. So, I in the, my in my experience. The absolute majority of people love it when you mention something or when we say something like, oh, I remember when he did da-da-da-da-da or I always loved how he was with da-da-da or I always remember his humor and when he, oh, remember at that party where he said whatever, to, to bring back memories because, of course, it also helps the grieving person remember more of those good times Which then helps with fading out the horrible last memories of the the trauma. And so that we can bring, help the person remember more of the good times. And we are, we are afraid, I think, to mention those things because we think, oh, at the moment, they seem like they're kind of doing okay. But when I now mention their deceased loved one, they're probably going to go downhill again. Well, in actual fact, they're thinking about their deceased loved one all the time anyway. It's not like the person is reminding them of something that they hadn't thought of. They're thinking about that person all the time anyway. And of course, most likely that memory or mentioning or talking about them will probably produce some tears, but that's not a bad thing because it just helps the person realize that, yeah. He's not gone, other people remember him fondly as well, and he's impacted so many other people. It's an important, important realization. Yeah, beautiful. And is there a difference? Have you found?
1: I mean, there is an expectation as we age that our parents will go, our grandparents will go. That's the way we feel nature intends it to happen. That's the way, if I was to say it should happen, that's the way we should be. No, no parent should ever have to go through burying their own child. Mm. Is there a difference in those situations that you've noticed? And if so, what's your advice around that, a
0: parent losing a child? It is it is not the natural order of the world, and it definitely shouldn't be like that. However, unfortunately, it does happen. But, of course, as a parent as a mother or father, you have devoted your life to protecting this child from all evil. I mean, every mother would instantly throw themselves in front of the bus to save their child without thinking. So there's, there's that extra element in it. But I don't think that, that any grief, I mean, the worst grief that anyone can experience is their own. And I think grieving the the death of a parent or a partner or a child they 're all unique, depending also very much on the relationship and how it was but there is i wouldn't say grief is not a competition it 's not like this grief is worse than the other grief um, when the partner dies everything changes the way that you get out of bed in the morning changes the way that you have breakfast changes that everything kind of changes um when when a child dies i mean especially if it's a it's if it's a baby or or a young child um of course there is usually an element um or a huge huge element of uh Incredible guilt beating oneself up. I should have prevented this from happening because that's my job as a mum or it's my job as a dad um, so there there are di- there are differences in the relationships, but at the same time it's grief It's the grief of having lost a loved one and needing to find a way to allow that grief to change us. We can never go back how things were beforehand. That is utterly impossible. So it's more about allowing that grief to change us and to find a way that that person can always be part of us. Let's talk then now
1: about the loss of, let's go into the the world right now, Silky, where the world has changed in the last Mm. two years And I'm finding many are grieving the loss of what they thought was freedom or grieving what they thought was individuality or grieving the fact that they can no longer or have to do certain things. How are you finding the world right now? And what's your advice
0: in supporting us all to get through these times? Well, it is incredibly challenging um, for everybody. And um, I think in the past... We always had a sense of certainty. We always felt like we were in control to some extent. But I think that has always been an illusion. Um, We never, if we're completely honest, we never knew what was actually around the corner. And um, now I think it has just become very, very obvious to us that we don't have that certainty But I think that in the past we have allowed ourselves to be lulled into a false sense of that. And um, it's become more more obvious now. And, of course, with with all of these changes that are also happening at an incredibly rapid pace, it's, I think, when the brain loves familiarity. And um, whenever there are changes, it takes a little while to adjust. And then it kind of feels like we've just adjusted to this new reality. And whoa, now it's changed again. And I need to adjust again. So that's why um, I think a lot of people feel like they're constantly on the back foot and that life is just at this incredible fast pace because by the time I've adjusted to the new reality, the new reality has changed again and planning anything is just incredibly difficult at the moment. So of course there is, there's so much grief about pretty much losing life as we once knew it. And in, in, in grief, it always comes down also to, to our values and finding a way that we can still live those values and that we can still share the values in, in a way that works now and into the future. And our values are really, I mean, people always think that they are this, this abstract construct, but we actually live our values by just doing the things that we love doing. And that could be, you know, going for a walk on the beach or going overseas or spending time with loved ones and so on and so forth. And, of course, when these then we can't express those values or we can't live it in the way that we're used to then that is a huge adjustment phase and um i don't know about you but for me um a zoom meeting is is better than nothing but of course it's really not the same thing as actually spending time with a person and I must say what I have missed, because when you're on a phone call or on a Zoom meeting, then you're kind of doing things. But what I really missed the most was just hanging out, just everybody doing their own thing under the same roof and just knowing that the other people are under that same roof. And I think that has been incredibly challenging uh for for everybody in the last two years and of course yeah the the loss of freedom and the loss of life as we once once knew it and I think the most important thing really is to acknowledge that change is challenging for us. the brain loves familiarity, and then to absolutely honor that and that to me is also self love to go okay. I am struggling right here. I'm struggling right now. And to just admit that to oneself, that these emotions are okay. I'm feeling these emotions at the moment. And it's important to feel these emotions and to not push them down. Yeah,
1: because I think what we suppress eventually gets expressed anyway, doesn't it? And it finds a way out, whether it's an emotional outburst or physically we can get ill or unwell, we can fall. I just don't believe there's any accidents when we are not paying attention to what we may personally need. You mentioned a few things so far that have really touched me and one of the things especially I just want to go back to, allow grief to change us. It's. It, I, I don't know why I'm feeling this, but you say we're not great with change. But I notice myself too. Um, the more I hold on to not wanting things to change, the more I have to change. Is is that normal? And how do we allow ourselves that process to say allow it to change us when we're still holding on to what we think could be or should be?
0: Um, I think. And you're absolutely right. the The more we hang on, the the more it forces us. And for me, it is really the as you said, the young It always comes out anyway. So then, what usually happens is that we might even consciously know that we need to do this, 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 or whatever it may be. But the unconscious just kind of goes, "Yeah, no," nah, or "Yeah, but." And we need to pay attention to all of those unconscious objections because what we usually try to do is when we kind of need to change, we want to go about it a little bit with a conscious sledgehammer and just push all of those unconscious objections away. And that's what makes it really hard. But once we start to actually pay attention to all of that unconscious stuff where the unconscious goes, yeah, but I don't want to do that because, and those things that usually come up, we kind of try to argue that away with pure logic. But the unconscious has got its own logic. And once we start paying attention to this unconscious logic and to those unconscious objections and actually listen to it, all of a sudden the resistance kind of backs off. It's a bit, I always kind of liken it a little bit to like a little toddler um, who is adamant about, I don't know, showing you the picture or whatever. But you're just busy um chopping veggies and go, oh yeah, lovely picture. Uh-huh. Two seconds later the toddler is back and goes, Hey, my picture. And you go, yeah, yeah, lovely. But the moment where you just drop everything, sit on the floor with the toddler and actually look at that picture and fully pay attention all of a sudden the toddler is quite happy and trottles off again. And that to me is very much how unconscious processes work because the moment where we actually lean into it, the unconscious feels heard and goes, oh, okay, finally somebody's listening to me. All right, I just needed you to acknowledge that this is hard. I just needed you to acknowledge that I'm struggling here. And then all of a sudden things can, can start to, to, to move again. I love it, and I think it's so powerful to acknowledge that
1: it is okay to not be okay, and yeah. there's probably no time limit on how long this is going to take you to one day, like your mum said, find joy again. And I think that's the greatest gift, someone we watch going through grief when we see them smiling again. I, I, I know you'd be the same. It's just one of the greatest yeah. feelings of all. Oh. It's even better when we're in it and we feel that smile come on too, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the episode, with your time, I'm sorry, mm. I just want no, to jump please. on that. Um, I, was, I was working with a lady, oh, probably I would say late 50s, early 60s, and um, she had lost her mum as um, a child pre-teenage years. And so that would have been, I don't know, 550 years ago. And um, we did some work around that. And um, all of a sudden, everything changed for her. She all of a sudden had memories. She said, I have no memories of my mum other than the three photographs that I have. And all of a sudden, she started to remember things again. So that is absolutely no, that thing about time heals all wounds. No, that is actually not true. It is what we do in that time. That's what starts the healing process. Mm. It's so true and so important to
1: remember that. Then, what do you think about the five stages of grief that we hear about so much? I think it's uh, denial, anger, yeah. bargaining, depression, acceptance. Do we
0: ever accept it
1: or is are they exactly.
0: real? So, um, I think it is, um, I actually do not agree with it at all uh, because, in my experience, you know, anxiety is a huge part of grief. It's not even in there. Um, But to understand it, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross did some amazing work and she originally started working with people um, in the, I want to say in the 50s, who were shoved away in some wing of the hospital who were terminally and dying. And she wanted to explore what do these people actually need? And what they needed most than anything is to be considered, uh, to be treated like humans. And um, then she came up and realized that everybody who's dying is going through these five stages of denial, bargaining bargaining is you know everything as in like i'm going to change my diet or for people who are very religious they might go okay if god allows me to heal i will do whatever um and then anger depression and then acceptance so acceptance of my own death that will happen very soon some people get there weeks or months before they die some people get there in the last second and that's how actually those five stages were originally men's. And then she did some follow-up work and they try to apply this to grief and grieving. But th- those stages were not meant to be linear. And of course, as you would know, Kim, you can go through all of those five stages in three minutes and go through them again. So they... I don't agree with those five stages at all because that is just one model. Unfortunately, it's a really well-known model, and I've I have seen lots of people who have come to me or found me online, and um, who said I've been through all these five stages, and now I'm still again in this stage. Um, does that mean I'm failing at grieving? I'm like no. No, actually not. Um, you're doing really well with grieving and let's just do it differently. Nice.
1: Yeah, I can imagine.
0: <laughs> I would love to know
1: more about then the other part that you've mentioned, anxiety. Now, anxiety tends to be linked to the fear of the unknown or the fear of what could happen or what will be or what has been. How is it in this day and age we are now, I mean, I don't know about you, but the statistics I'm seeing is that anxiety, depression, and sadly suicide is, is trebling, quadrupling at the moment. What is causing that anxiety and then perhaps
0: depression? Like what is happening at the moment, do you think? I think that um, for, for one, um, so anxiety is very much a learned response response. So we can learn it, um, we usually learn it as 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 children and we can learn it from a grown-up. Um, for example, if I grow up with somebody who always is, oh honey, be careful, don't go so close to the edge, be careful, you might fall. Oh, honey, do don't don't do that. Be careful, be careful, be careful. Then as a toddler, I kind of go, Oh, I didn't know why that would be dangerous, but the way that you're freaking out, whoa, I better be afraid of that from now on. Because, as children, we just copy the the behavior of the grown ups, so I think that is one one side to it. The other way that we learn anxiety is through what we call a significant emotional event, where all of a sudden something happens, and we learn to now be afraid of this this thing um, and then, of course, also, as a society, um when w- kids are not allowed to climb trees anymore because they could fall down and break an arm or we don't allow them to do this or do that or da-da-da-da-da, they don't actually get the resources to deal with those scenarios. And um, I think we have kind of become a little bit of a society of mollycoddling Um our children and ourselves a little bit too much so that we actually don't remember that we actually have incredible resources. Because I mean, the only reason that we are having this chat here today or that our, the listeners are listening to this is because every single one, you have the resources that you need to get through whatever has happened in your life because you're here today. So obviously you have exactly the resources that you need to deal with whatever. And, and if you don't have them, I can assure you, you're going to find them and that can be incredibly challenging. So anxiety is originally designed to be a response to remove you from the acute threat and put you into a situation where you can recover and recuperate. So that then you can go out and face the world again. And, um, I think we kind of need to come back into realizing that in actual fact, we are incredible resourceful as human beings. We are incredible adaptable. We can deal with so much more than we think we can. You've mentioned quite a few times now about the unconscious mind and then you
1: said how you work with someone. How do you tap into that unconscious mind and get past that critical factor, that critical part of the mind, not wanting to believe what you're doing or saying? And I guess I'd love you to lead us into the power of what hypnosis is all about.
0: Mm. So, yeah, absolutely. Hypnosis is a completely naturally occurring state of the brain. The brain goes into a hypnotic trance. Many, many, many times during the day, it's very much like when you're driving a car, and after ten minutes, you go, "Oh, how did I get here? Did I, did I stop at those lights? Hmm, can't remember." That was just means that your conscious mind was thinking about whatever it was thinking about, while your unconscious was fully focused on the job of driving. You see, in in children, when they're standing on the front lawn, quite often with their mouth a little bit open and they're just kind of staring into space. At that moment in time, they're just in a hypnotic trance and absorbing all of that information. So how do we get around it? Um, First of all, all hypnosis is self-hypnosis, and um, the unconscious processes information very differently to the conscious mind. The unconscious processes through stories, through metaphors, through symbols, and um the conscious mind is more of that logical part. And I when I think about it, I quite often think about it in, in in terms really of the brain and our human evolution. As humans, we've been on this planet for a really, really, really long time. But we've and we have communicated through taking each other by the hand and pointing at stuff, through maybe making grunt noises or by doing cave drawings. And language has only been part of us for a fairly recent number of years. So the unconscious is more that old part that, of course, understands symbols, that understands stories, that understands being taken by the hand and pointing at something. And the logical part of the brain, that's the language part of the brain. And that has only come into play in the recent, whatever, 50,000 years or whatever it may be. And um, so we get around that conscious bit exactly through using the language that the unconscious understands the best. And that is symbols and metaphors and stories. I love it. And when I am
1: put into those situations, what I love most about hypnosis is you don't know what's coming. You don't know what's happening. And then when you get prompted by a beautiful practitioner like yourself, all of a sudden you see something and then we go, oh, why did I see that? I don't know. It doesn't mean anything. But even a fleck of dust on a carpet can mean something. There's always something that means something to you. And your unconscious mind, I'm imagining, is telling you something. Yes, do you Have you found or ever had quite profound situations happen with hypnosis? And why I'm asking this is um, we know that there's stage hypnosis as well, which is quite a different type of hypnosis. But how do you know someone is hypnotized or in that state of trance?
0: For me, it is incredibly obvious. There are there are changes to the face. There are um, little twitches of different muscle groups. But you know, it's I. I remember I was standing at, at the ocean somewhere, and um, I said um, to somebody, "Oh, is the tide coming in or is it going out?" And there was like an old fisherman, and he just looked at me like I was from a different planet, and he was like. Uh, It's just turned and it's starting to come in again. And it would have turned about 20 minutes ago. He just looked at the ocean and he instantly knew. So, Or when you ask a sailor and they can actually tell you that there's a current running that way or or whatever it is. Um, So to me, it's just incredibly obvious um, when a person – goes into hypnosis, how deeply they are into in hypnosis. And stage hypnosis is, is great. And it's, it's, it's great fun. And um, But of course, there is a premise behind it that makes it work. Because if you go to stage hypnosis show, without a shadow of a doubt, you know that the people who end up on stage will be doing funny things in front of the audience. And of course, then the stage hypnotist comes on stage and says, who wants to be the star of my show tonight? Who wants to be my willing volunteer? And then you get three groups of people you get the ones who are going yeah yeah pick me pick me pick me pick me and they're gagging for it then you get the ones who are usually egged on by a loved one come on you want to and they're a bit tentatively putting their hand up sort of half up not really up and then you've got the third group of people who are almost sitting on their hands and looking at the floor kind of going I'm not even here so of course the stage hypnotist is only ever going to pick the first ones the ones who are gagging for it who are going yes i want to know what this is like? Because they have given him consent. They don't know exactly what they're going to be doing once they're on stage, but they've given him absolute consent. Whereas the other ones have given him not really consent. The the last group is a clear no. And the middle group is a conscious yes, maybe, but an unconscious definitely no. And um, so, of course, then he's got complete consent. And so he's got a willing volunteer who really wants to participate in the show. And I work as a hypnotherapist, so I always assume consent from every single one of my clients that they actually want to experience hypnosis. I heard an interesting statement
1: made not long ago about from another hypnotherapist who said, actually, our job is not to hypnotize people. Our job is to unhypnotize people. Correct. (laughs) Get them out of their trance and get them into a better trance. (laughs) That's right. So if we, if it's based on different significant emotional events that have occurred in our lives that trigger us to have the same behavior, the beliefs, the same memories, the same recurrences, and it creates a state physiology and then our behavior, how can hypnosis and do you believe hypnosis can fast track a new wiring? so that we can actually have another event that could be in the past triggering and yet we find a new way to rewire. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah,
0: pretty much. Um, And um, so quite often, like, especially with traumatic events, um, when we relive that traumatic event, we always get stuck in the worst bit of the event. We don't actually get to the point where that particular part of the event is over and where we somehow realize that we've actually survived that. We're only stuck in that bad bit. Um, and with hypnosis and also with NLP, we kind of almost like put bookends around that event that there wasn't before and there actually wasn't after. And once we can bookend the whole thing, it almost helps then to go, okay, that was one thing but then there was something else afterwards and um, with hypnosis um, it just really also we can help focus on other events as well and the, the whole thing about rewiring the brain um, of course v- visualizations or rehearsals um, absolutely work because we can not really differentiate between a vividly imagined and a real experience, which is why watching scary movies is scary, because we can't really tell the difference. And it is exactly the same when we use hypnosis to rewire the brain, that we do rehearsals in hypnosis of the wanted behavior, so that that helps create those neurological pathways faster.
1: It's so powerful and it's so incredible how quickly things can change for someone, but it does depend on the willingness of the person to go there, doesn't it? Absolutely. So absolutely. Have, you, have you ever had a client that's come maybe being brought by somebody because they really want to know that you'd be able to help them and they've just not been a willing participant? Yeah, absolutely.
0: And well, how do you work through that? <laughs> Um, I work through it that everybody needs to book themselves in. So I don't take bookings on behalf of somebody because even if it's the well-meaning wife or husband who want their partner to come and see me, and let's say they've got a really busy job, but if they can't even find the three minutes to make that phone call or to send me an email, then how important is it really to them? So I don't take bookings on behalf of anybody. What about those someone whose partner
1: is really in a world of pain or really struggling with anxiety or depression or a child, a teenager that's really suffering with some sort of mental condition? Is there a space and a place then or what would you recommend we do as the person alongside
0: of Mm. someone in that? So with with children of course it's a different story um with children um yes absolutely i i let the parent book the child in but i always ask does the child want help with this? Do they want to overcome this problem? Uh, with children sometimes they do sometimes they don't, but children are, are a bit of a different story with with teenagers once they kind of get to that age of of you know fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, um, I always ask that that um, that the child just sends me a quick email and just explaining um, why they want help. And that can be, you know, a two sentence kind of email, but that I get some kind of buy in from the person. And um, now if somebody is really struggling and we want to help them, usually the best thing to do then is um, to point them in the direction. So I quite often say to the person, here, I would recommend that you show your partner um, this bit on my on my homepage or I have a look at that bit um uh, or listen to, for example, our podcast. And um, then, you know, let it let it be up to them when they want to make that decision. Agreed. Agreed.
1: And we all traveling our own journey. We're all in this thing. I believe we're all a work in progress and we're all here to learn and grow and expand. One other aspect of NLP, people don't just come to you for the pain, the grief and the the agonies and traumas of life. I imagine there's a lot of clients that you have that want to up level, upskill. They're hmm. already doing well, but there's something that's glitching them or something holding them back or they can't quite make things happen or their relationships don't quite tick. Is there a many in that category? And do you love working with those types too that just want to up level themselves constantly? yeah
0: absolutely yeah 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 i I have a lot a lot of clients in that space as well um and um it's 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 also really great work um and but I must admit that i actually for me, my biggest reward is when I see relief in my clients when all of a sudden they can breathe easier, or all of a sudden towards the end of a session they are crying, but they're crying tears of relief that they've got rid of something big. And that doesn't matter whether it's a grieving client, whether it's an anxiety client, or whether it is somebody, you know, who's already doing really well, but they had this one thing that's been bugging them. Um, That giving somebody relief. Yeah. That's, that's, I think why I do it. Yeah. I can, I can totally
1: relate to that. I can, I think I really hear you on that level. I haven't really wondered mm. what it is, why I love it when they walk out, but to see that smile or to see a change in their physiology, their cheek color, their, their glow, whatever it is, there's a process and it means that they're moving forward, which is a beautiful, a beautiful allowance that we can give ourselves. It really is a form of self-love then doing this work, isn't it? It really mm. is allowing ourselves to clean up to To move on, move past. Maybe I don't like the words "move on" either, but to move Mm -hmm. past maybe the blocks, but also to really acknowledge that you know to love oneself is also also to acknowledge that sometimes life sucks, sometimes life's not great, sometimes we are in the throes of despair, or it feels like a Mack truck has hit us. What is your definition of self love? Wow, what a great
0: question. Um, To me self-love is actually unconditional love. And that is accepting oneself, what and all, and realizing our humanity. And that as human beings, we are everything but perfect. As human beings, we have our strengths, our weaknesses, we make mistakes. And that leads also to a forgiving relationship with ourselves. And you know how we always say treat other people the way that you want to be treated yourself. I yeah, I agree with that. However, I my saying is more along the lines of treat yourself the way that you treat other people. Because the internal self-dialogue that some people have is just horrible. So once we get a self-loving relationship with ourselves, we're actually able to have a forgiving relationship with ourselves. And um, I think for me, a a huge part of self-love is to always remind ourselves that your worth is a given. You can't earn any more worth. You can't lose any worth. Your worth is a given and that, that, yeah, you, you are unique and I think the more we can remind ourselves of these things, I think the the more we can develop that self-loving and self-forgiving relationship. So beautiful. I,
1: I know we're coming to the end, sweetheart, but there is one question I want to ask you. I'd love your insight on this. I'd love you to bring comfort to those of us in the world right now watching the world, and I'm not asking I realize that there's sides, there's segregation, there's division, there's choices, there's no choices, there's you and us and them and we, and it just seems to me right now, the world feels a little chaotic, if I was to say so. (laughs) And I just love some of your silky words of comfort for all of us sitting here in a quite a, a stunned state, really. Maybe we're all in a bit of a hypnotic trance, just watching, learning, listening to what's happening Without feeling like we have any control or power over that. But there is some power we can hold, isn't there? And I'd love your words of wisdom around what we can do individually and collectively in this chaotic time right now.
0: So for me, it is always understanding that there is no one way, there are lots of different ways. And to me, kindness is really important, and always wanting instead of going, this is right, this is. For me, it comes down to curiosity, just being curious. Why does this person think this way? Why does the person, what drives them to believe this? Um, And that with that curiosity and combined with kindness, I think we can really manage this world in a much better way.
1: Yeah. And I think too, maybe not, I think with that element of curiosity, realizing that we don't have to have everyone believe us or agree with us, and therefore we don't have to go into fight every conversation perhaps to get our side across. And I know for many people who are in this work and the type of people listening to this podcast understand this, But I think it's sometimes the people we're around who don't always give the same respect or the same kindness or the same compassion. How do you suggest people respond, not react? How do we respond to those kinds of feeling like we're being, I don't know, maybe ostracized or judged or hurt in some other way? How can we respond to that?
0: I think it is for me, it is more an understanding that that person just doesn't see what I see. And that that person, they might be wearing something that I would never wear. I would, I would, I, I really would not ever wear that. But you know what? On that person, that looks okay. So it's exactly the same thing to me, having different beliefs or different ways on how to move forward with the state that the world is in the moment to just kind of go, you know what, it's okay. I can absolutely accept that you are doing this, I don't know, diet or this exercise regime. It ain't for me, but good on you for you doing this. It's exactly the same thing. People have got different beliefs. That's okay. Yeah, I think the struggle for many
1: Many people, particularly in the front line, particularly being challenged with um, rules that they cannot change or being punished for being a certain way. I, I guess I, I go into the space of people like Nelson Mandela that managed to be in prison for 27 years. Yes. Um, you know, they can do things to us. I remember my beautiful mother in law always saying, they can hurt your body, they can do things to you. But you can keep your mind. They can never, they can never take that if you don't let them. And yes, look, it's very powerful at the moment for us all to remember that. I love that saying, Silky. I don't know if you've heard it, but those who speak do not know, those who know do not speak. And sometimes I'm finding myself being drawn to people who aren't speaking so much <laughs> at the moment. Um, but yes, it brings comfort to me to know that there's women like you paving the way and reminding us to come back to ourselves to remind ourselves to truly love who we are, not judge, but perhaps realize there's no right or wrong, but to always stay in a place of kindness to self and others with a curious mindset is certainly a gift. And, and whilst it may take practice, I can guarantee you there's enough people out there to give you the, the ability to practice it on. Mm-hmm. So um, with gratitude, I thank you for sharing your knowledge and, I know you've worked with a couple of people I know and you have helped them beyond words, Silky. You've literally saved their lives. You have literally changed lives and you just have such a beautiful way about you that um, I don't think you probably may ever understand the ripple effect of what you do and how much you inspire those of us that are in the work and also those of us who love to work. Um, on ourselves and grow and develop and take these opportunities as an opportunity to change and grow and develop and up level and all of the things that you offer so from my heart to yours you beautiful soul thank you thank you for all
0: the work you're doing the world needs you more than ever right now oh thank you thank you so much for saying that that is beautiful kim thank you I appreciate you so much. And, you know, just as we come to a close, is there any final
1: message you would love to give to the beautiful self-love podcast listener?
0: There is always hope. The world is changing and in that there's all hope. And you as a human being are incredibly adaptable.
1: Thank you. I think we all need to hear that right now. <laughs> As a final quote, what is one of your favorites at the moment?
0: Oh God, there are so many, but um it's a quote by Blaise Pascal and the saying is the heart has its reasons that reason knows nothing of. Oh. <laughs> That's
1: beautiful. Beautiful, Silky, if someone wanted to reach out to you and work with you or find out more about you and follow you, how can we do that, my love? Sure.
0: So um, with regards to grief, my website is grieftolove.com. And on there, you can find resources. I've got um, a few PDFs down there that can help people to to download those. So that's grief to love.com. And for my general hypnotherapy work, it is Australian hypnotherapy And um, yeah, I work with people worldwide online. I bet you do.
1: (laughs) You are booked in advance a long way away (laughs) because of the amazing change and the incredible outcomes that you have. Thank you, my beautiful friend. Thank you for being who you are. And I'm so grateful you allowed us the space and time so I could share a little piece of your amazingness with the world. And I just want to
0: say from my heart to yours again. Thank you, sweetheart. Oh, thank you so, so much for having me, Kim. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for everything you do.
1: Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family. And head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care.